my soul. Alistair Gordon is a Scottish artist who has worked in London for the past 18 years. Alistair spoke at the Abbey Summer School, which was online this year, about the importance of art. If you want to know more, he's written a book. It's called Why Art Matters, published by the InterVarsity Press. Alistair Gordon. Well, I was at a party just before lockdown and a friend asked a surprising question. We've been talking about the state of the world, concerns that we had about the beginning of the pandemic lockdown, uh, about what might be happening in the year ahead. And someone asked, she said, people are going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their health and their lives. With so much evil in the world right now, why does art even matter? You know, can a painting find a cure for the coronavirus? Or can a sculpture stop a tank from invading another country? My response was immediate, and it was something like this. Art matters because people matter. You know, and people are made in the image of God. Art gives voice to people who can't be heard. Art shapes the way we see the world and the way that we see one another. Art matters because a beautiful painting or a beautiful sculpture or a film can transform us in a way that nothing else can. It's not just that it brightens up our spirits, which of course it can, but a really great work of art can excite and insight. It can provoke and soothe. It can inspire and it can unsettle. In a world of so many ups and downs and turmoil, art matters more than ever. Art can bring about positive change. It can bring about economic resilience, political action, even social revolution. And art can remind us of the things that really matter most in life. It can lift our eyes to eternity and it can show us the importance of the things of here and now. Art helps us to see things that are hidden. It can also be a new way of seeing. As John F. Kennedy, former president, said in his final words to the world, would you believe it? He said, we must never forget that art is not a form of propaganda, that art is a form of truth. So there's a story often told about the 19th century Scottish author, of Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson. And the story goes that when he was a boy, his family lived on the hillside overlooking a small town. And there, Robert was intrigued by the work of the old gas lamplighters. Those men who went about with a ladder and a torch and they'd light the gas street lamps for the night in the days before electricity, of course. And one evening as he stood watching with fascination the story goes that his parents asked him, Robert, what are you looking at out there over the town? And young Robert replied, he said, look at that man. He said, he's punching holes in the darkness. I'd like us to reflect a moment on how art might punch holes in the darkness.
the Scottish Festival Singers and For My Sake and the Gospels Go. Now we go back to Alistair Gordon who was speaking at the Abbey Summer School. Uh, Like so many things recently, it was a virtual summer school conducted over the internet. A few years ago, my wife and I experienced one of the hardest events of our life together. And I'll never forget that moment when the doctor leant forward at the hospital, took Anna's hand and explained to us both that our unborn child was not going to make it into the world. And we didn't know it at the time, but this was to be the first of several miscarriages and failed pregnancies, each one becoming harder, another prayer said down by the river, another tree planted in memory in the garden. You know, that that orchard of grief that was cultivating in our garden and deeply within us. Like many Christian couples, we turn to God for help. Or at least we tried to turn. If I'm being honest, we found it very difficult to pray. How could God allow this to happen? What was the sense? Where was the good? Where was the hope? And C.S. Lewis uh, described it so well when he wrote in A Grief Observed that no one ever told you that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid, he said, but the sensation is like being afraid, the same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. We each, in our own way, have suffered loss this year, have we not? The loss of perceived freedom, the loss of health, perhaps even the loss of someone we hold very dearly. The orchard of grief grows and is cultivated in us and how the creation groans. I share that story not to to garner your sympathy and my wife and I have been really well supported through the years but for my wife and I the Lord offered an olive branch to us in the midst of that grief and despair and it came to us in the most unexpected of places it came to us through the arts to be specific it came through a poem Now, my wife and I have been seeing a counsellor and she suggested that we write a letter to God and that letter took the form of of a poem as we searched for the right words, trying to find just the right phrase to express what we felt. It was as if a salve was being applied and the healing began. That simple act of poetry was enough to clear a path back to God. It became a focus for our grief, a way of containing the chaos, something tangible to remember our unborn daughter by. A poem led to prayer. Prayer led again to God's word. And there we found the Lord once more in scripture to comfort and remind us of what is real and eternal. Just As the Spirit of God gave a cloud and gave fire to lead his people through the wilderness, so he might offer art to abide his presence through the darkness and the storm. Art keeps watch through the storm. It it holds a vigil in times of need. 
It gives us the words to express our sorrow and even the colour to identify our grief. In this way, art might remind us of the very character of God who is not distant, but walks tenderly with his people through the darkest night of the soul. Art can break through the darkness when all else may fail. It can hold a candle when night falls, like the gas lamp lighters of Stevenson's childhood. Art punches holes in the darkness. Kenneth McKellar, along with the choir of Paisley Abbey, and the song was O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. Here's Stuart Townend with Hear the Call of the Kingdom. Lift your eyes to the king 
Elaine Brown is an author and a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Elaine has produced a series of talks for us on hymns which mean a lot to her. Today she talks about the chorus, There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. On lockdown Sundays, and sometimes during the week too, I've thought of hymns and songs and maybe recalled the story behind the hymn or the time when the song specially helped me. Doing this has been a valued part of my faith journey over these months, so I thought I'd share one or two of the songs with you. Today's choice goes way back to childhood days when I learnt a song with a very catchy tune. I'd love to sing it to you, but I daren't. Here's how this song has held meaning for me, not just at the start of my life, but also now in my later years. When I was about nine or ten, we used to go to a crusader class on Sunday afternoons. It was held in a big house with a big sitting room that was often full of us kids. We'd sing something they called choruses, and we were often allowed to choose a chorus. So when my turn came, this is the one I usually chose. I'll read it, but it's from memory, so excuse any slight differences. There's a work for Jesus, ready at your hand. Tis a task the Master just for you has planned. Go where fields are whitened and the labourers few. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. Work for Jesus day by day. Serve him ever, falter never, Christ obey. Yield him service, loyal, true. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. Well, I just loved that song and I loved its tune and it fired my enthusiasm. I longed to go where the fields are whitened. That sounded exciting. In years later, I think that is just what happened. In due course, my pilot husband and I set off to work with Mission Aviation Fellowship in East Africa. That was a good time. Eleven years later, now with three children, we moved back to Scotland and Les began flying out of Aberdeen for the oil industry. Not exactly where the fields are whitened, but even so there was still plenty to do and our lives were busy. Now I'm a granny and an octogenarian who has moved to a supported living flat and settled in very happily. What now? Is there anything for me now? One day recently, I remembered that song, Serve Him Ever, Falter Never. Then, there's a work for Jesus none but you can do. Those last words still apply and always will. Amazing that Jesus still has work just for me and just for you too, whatever your age. I'll read the chorus again. 
There's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. Tis a task the master just for you has planned. Go where fields are whitened and the labourers few. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do.
Malcolm Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear his thoughts on Psalm 39. It's followed by Handel's Dixit Dominus, sung by the choir of Queen's College Oxford with the Brook Street Band, conducted by Hohen Rees. A response to Psalm 39. Deliver me and raise me from the dead, for I have walked in shadows. Nothingness, the vanity of things, fills me with dread, the sheer inanity, the pointlessness of how we used to live. We can't go back to that. The rush that masked our emptiness, all the pretense that covered what we lack, when what we really lacked was always you. I held my tongue, but I could see the crack in everything we build and say and do, and now the crack is widening. I pray that we will turn and see a light break through these fissures that so fill us with dismay. The death we fear is birth. The shell is breaking. The stone itself will soon be rolled away. Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks for us where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, he thinks about the early years of Joseph. Well, I suppose it's just a question of exchanging one coat for another. Both of them are eye-catching, intricate and exquisitely made. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here I am going on about things you have no idea about, and I haven't even introduced myself yet. My name is Joseph, and I'm second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. But it wasn't always like this, as you'll ascertain from my story. I grew up in the land of Canaan, the second youngest of 12 brothers. 
I love my father very much, but this made my other brothers jealous, and they didn't like me, thinking I was daddy's favorite. He even made a coat for me of many beautiful colors, and you'll certainly know how expensive it is to have clothing with colors in them. Well, this was my first coat. Things got worse between my brothers and me when I told them about a dream I'd had, where twelve sheaves of wheat were in a field, but theirs bowed to me. <laughs> well, they didn't like that much, but if they didn't like that dream, the next one was even worse. I had another dream where the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to me. Even my father got cross with me on that one. My brothers, after that, never spoke openly to me confiding between themselves with furtive whispers and sidelong glances. One day my father told me to go to Shechem, where I'd find my brothers and get word back to him as to how they were getting on with the flocks. They weren't there, so I inquired of a local herdsman, and he told me he'd seen them in Dothan, so I went there. Little did I know how my life was to change. I should have known that something was brewing by the way they said nothing but sneered at me with evil smiles and raised eyebrows. Before I knew what was happening, they had me pinned to the ground and threw me. Yes, yes, they literally threw me into a pit. And they also took my coat, my multicolored coat that father made for me. Soon after, a caravan of Ishmaelites showed up and they quickly made a deal to buy and sell something and that something was me. They were selling me as a slave. I overheard my brothers killing a goat and dipping my beautiful coat in the blood to show my father. They wanted him to believe I'd been killed by a wild beast. Well, after that, it took 25 days to reach the land of Egypt with this caravan of Ishmaelites in the stinking hot desert, being pulled along with ropes around my wrists whilst everyone else rode on sheltered camels. I was then sold into the house of the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguards named Potiphar. There were so many things to learn. Now, keep in mind, I didn't speak Egyptian. I didn't know their customs. My thought was that even though this was a horrid turn of events, going from being the son of one of the wealthiest persons in Canaan to being a slave to a pagan, I made a resolution. With my God's help, I would make better the place I found myself in. So, I worked hard trying my best at every task my master sent for me. In time, he perceived that I did things quite well, and he started to put me in charge of more things, little by little, until finally he had me in charge of his entire household. Then came a serious problem. Potiphar had a stunningly beautiful wife, and unfortunately, she had eyes for me. Day after day, her lusty looks did little things to attract my attention, but I wasn't to be tempted. One day, she wouldn't take no for an answer, and when all the men were outside, she tried to force the issue and to make me love her. I tried reasoning with her, saying, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. Except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, I knew I had Potiphar's trust and his affection. How could I do this? She wouldn't be refused, and I, being a slave in her house, was her property to dispose of as she saw fit. When I ran out of the room, she grabbed a part of my tunic and ripped in her hand. The other men then came from outside after hearing, hearing a disturbance. 
Well, she puts on a display of acting that I can only qualify as impressive. And me being a slave? Well, there was nothing I could say. For the first and last time, Potiphar was angry with me and immediately sent me to prison. Sometimes wonder what would have been the result if I'd given in to her. She was desirable, and I'm convinced it would have been infinitely worse. After all, how can a man sin against God knowingly and think that everything will be well? So you'd think that with me in prison, that would be the end of the story? Aha, but wait, I have not told you about the second coach yet. So I'll come back next week and finish the tale. We can be kind. So many things we can't control So many hurts that happen every day So many heartaches that pierce our souls So much pain that won't ever go away How do we make it better? How do we make it through? What can we do when there's nothing can do We can be kind We can take care of each other We can remember that deep down inside we all need the same thing And maybe we'll find If we are there that together we'll weather whatever tomorrow may bring And it's not enough to talk about it Not enough to sing a song We must walk the walk about it Do our part Give our hearts so someone else can get us True peace.
we can